You know, I uh, went to the eye doctor maybe a month ago, and uh, I hadn't been in probably seven years, which for the record, you're not supposed to do. You're supposed to go regularly. And I thought I was fine. And the eye doctor said, um, you need glasses. And I said, no, I don't. And she said, yeah, you do. And she handed me a pair, and I put them on, and I said, oh, I need glasses. <laughs> So uh, here we are. I thought while we were changing things, we would just go ahead and change all things. You know, I, I, uh, I walked down this morning. I got ready in Michelle's home with some of the kids who are sick here this morning. And I walked down and, and she looked at me and she just started laughing. And I said, uh, can I help you with something? And she said, you, I can't say it. And I said, no, tell me. She says, you, and she laughs again, just look so old. <laughs> And I said, why, thanks, honey. You look great. <laughs> so here we are. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. I'm eager to jump back into this text with you here this morning and continue the study that we began several weeks back. Uh, eager for this. Uh, and I just want to say thank you as you're turning. I just want to say thank you to the ladies yesterday who kind of spearheaded that whole women's event that we had for mainstream. I heard great things about that. I know everybody was very grateful uh, to be able to be there. So Deborah, thank you. I know Lynn Beerhorst and Jocelyn Devaney, and I think even Amy Anderson had a part in that. Amy, are you here? She, oh, she's in nursery too. Got it. Okay. Um, but, but thank you to all of you ladies for helping set that up. I know that it was really a great time of encouragement um, for everyone who was able to be there. And the next time around, if you were not able to be there yesterday, I would encourage you to uh, take advantage of that good time of fellowship and encouragement as uh, you got to spend some time together just thinking through some biblical principles for life. So Ephesians chapter 4. You know, a couple weeks ago, uh, we started looking at this passage. We were talking about the intentional use of technology. And I want to go back and continue thinking through the intentionality that we ought to be using in our technology. And I was, as I was thinking through that topic of being intentional in what we do, I couldn't help but uh, think about the example that the person of Christ sets for us and the way by which he was so very intentional. I was thinking about that this week, actually, because I've got a new game that I play with my kids, uh, and it's the game that basically lets the kids ask the question, when I get to heaven and I meet so-and-so, biblical character, what's my very first question going to be to them? And I'm here to tell you that when you ask a four-year-old that question, uh, the result that you find out is that Noah has a lot to answer for. He's going to be answering questions for plus or minus 200 years in eternity, I think, from my littlest one. Uh, but we were really thinking this week a little bit about the story of Zacchaeus. That was the story that they wanted to think about. And so they were asking all sorts of questions about that. Pretty funny answers with their curious little minds. Uh, Lizzie was asking, well, how am I going to find Zacchaeus when I get to heaven? And I said, well, Lizzie, that's really easy. It's, it's obvious. Just look for the shortest guy there and, and ask him your questions. And she thought that was great. And Emma wanted to know, if you were so short, how did you climb up that tree? So we were talking through all these really existential hermeneutical kinds of questions, you know, from the minds of these four-year-olds. And then um, Emma asked the question, you know, why, Zacchaeus, do you think that Jesus came to your house that day? I thought, ooh, now there is a good question. Because the answer is given directly in the text. And Jesus says, and he only says two things in that whole story. He says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house and then at the end of the text, he says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who were lost. That's why he went. 
But interestingly enough, kind of sandwiched in there in that whole narrative of Zacchaeus, what you find is really the person of our Lord being intentional at every step with multiple groups of people. He's talking to Zacchaeus, but while he's talking to Zacchaeus, he's simultaneously ministering to his disciples. He's modeling for them exactly how to engage with an unbeliever. He's ministering to the Pharisees as he's revealing the hypocrisy of their heart. He's ministering to everyone else in the crowd who was there watching him interact with Zacchaeus. And most directly, obviously, he was ministering to Zacchaeus as he communicated to him the message of salvation. But as I read that story and was thinking through that, it struck me how very intentional Jesus was in everything that he did. He very rarely just did one thing. He would do one thing, but it would have multiple different outcomes because he was a man who was intentional. He was driven by the mission of his life, right? The mission of his life was to seek and to save those who were lost. And and that mission caused him to be very purposeful, very intentional in the way that he went about living his life and engaging with a lost and fallen humanity. You see, his understanding of his mission, it caused him to be intentional in everything that he did. And I think that the very same thing is also true for us, right? That we are to be people who are intentional, not so that we might have successful lives, but so that we might fulfill the mission for which we were redeemed. You see, we were called and saved for a purpose. And therefore, in light of that mission, it's incumbent upon all of us to live in every area in our life in a way that is equally intentional. Our level of intentionality ought to be as significant as the mission for which we were saved. We were saved for a very specific reason, and there we ought to, therefore, we ought to live in a very specific way. And last week, or not last week, but several weeks ago, I've been out of town for a few weeks, hence, you know, all the facial hair. Uh, But several weeks ago, we started looking at the way that we as believers are to intentionally reject worldliness in the way by which we engage technologically with the world that's around us. And we saw that, I think, very clearly from Ephesians chapter 4, as we were working there through a number of verses, through verses uh, 17, really all the way down through verse 20. And we got down to verse 20, and we really found there the hinge in this passage, where we're told by uh, the Apostle Paul, he says, you did not learn Christ in this way. What he's arguing for is to say, because you did not learn Christ in the way of the world, in the way of the Gentiles, you need to reject all of their ways. But then he turns upon that hinge and says, because you did learn Christ in a certain way, you must be equally intentional in your pursuit of him as you are intentional in your rejection of worldliness. You see, it's not enough just to reject the world. You also have to cling to Christ. It's, it's two halves of an, of an equation. And, and last time, we were walking through those concepts and applying those truths to our interactions with the various aspects of technology around us, and we kind of ran out of time a little bit. So what I want to do this morning is jump back into this text there in verse 21 and spend a little bit more time thinking through how are we to intentionally pursue Christ specifically as it relates to our usage of technology and what what should that look like and look like in the life of a believer and and once we wrap that up we'll see how much time we have left then I want to jump into uh, specifically the question how should a Christian think about using social media 
Because I think that as we work our way through this text, there are some very specific principles that answer that question. So we'll kind of turn the page halfway through the message, wrap it up from last time, and keep going on in some new territory here this morning, okay? So right away there in verse 20, we find the principle that we are to be intentional as we seek to pursue Christ. Paul says this, you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as all truth is in Jesus. The very first principle that we find here in verses 20 and 21 is that Christian technology is to be distinctly redeemed. It ought to be distinctly redeemed, okay? The way in which you engage with the world around you should scream to everyone around you, I love Christ and you should too, all right? It ought to to characterize everything about you. Paul is saying your life, verse 20, ought to reflect the life of Christ. If you have heard him and if you have been instructed in him, then your life should reflect the truth of who he is. You see, hearing the voice of God, it It calls you to a new life, and that new life results in you being fundamentally different. You are, as Paul says in verse 21, being taught in his ways, and that requires that you no longer be blind. Instead, you now now know how to live, which is what he says here. You have been instructed in the truth of Jesus. You know how to live as a redeemed individual before the eyes of a holy God. He's saying, if you have heard the truth, if you have learned the truth, then you know the truth, and truth is in Jesus. And he becomes the standard for everything in our life, and that goes for our usage of technology as well. You see, your digital self, they call it a digital footprint, right? Where you surf the web and you close your browser and there's nothing else that's there, right? Theoretically, but you have left footprints that have tracked their way all around the world wide web, right? The way that you engage with that, that is really an extension of you. I think so often people can approach the way they use technology and they, they think that they are nameless, they are faceless, They are anonymous, but you did not learn Christ that way. There is not a division in your behavior, whether you're online or offline. You see, you know the truth of who God is. You you know him. You have heard him. You have been instructed by him, and you now know who he is, and therefore there must be no division between your public and your private life, your online world and your offline world. You are redeemed and your engagement with the world must be distinctly redeemed at every single point. Everything about your life, your digital self, it it ought to be redeemed as well. You see, your testimony to an unsaved world, it, it it doesn't stop when you step behind a piece of glass. Your testimony is actually louder behind that piece of glass. By what you post, by what you watch, by how you engage, particularly when no one is watching. You see, we don't, we don't do what we do because anyone else is watching. Redeemed people do what they do in the knowledge that God is the one who is watching. And that is what makes you distinctly Christian. That is what means, that's what Paul says here, you did not learn Christ in this way. If you know Christ, then you know that you must live above reproach before his eyes because it's really his eyes that are all that matters. And therefore, 
what you do should not change when you pick up a device with the capacity to take you anywhere you want to go. And, and that is the true test of who you are. See, Christian technology, the use of it should be distinctly redeemed. You keep going down into verse 22, and we find a second principle here of what we are to do as we seek to pursue Christ-likeness. Christian technology ought to be distinctly pure as well. He says essentially here, if you've learned the truth of Jesus, if you've been taught it, if you've heard his voice, here's what you will have heard. That, verse 22, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. He's saying the way that you engage in the world around you, it's not like the way of the Gentiles. It's not like the way that they traipse through the world without a worry or a care doing whatever they want. The way we are to engage with the world is to be a, in a way, in a, in a fashion, in a mode that is distinctly pure. That's why he says there to, to lay aside these things, your, your formal, lustful, corrupted self. That word there, lay aside, it means to take something off, to strip it away, to, to be done with it completely. And, and that really is an intentional effort. Laying aside something doesn't just happen, right? It, you have to try to lay aside something. This, this effort here in this text, it's got to be intentionally undertaken with full dependence upon the power of God's spirit to enable you. It's the same thing here. You see, the Christian who knows the truth of Christ, they are very intentional about surgically cutting out any blindness, any lust, any corruption. Those are the words that are used there in verse 22. They cut them out of their life. You know, it used to be that, that in order to find wicked material, you had to go off in search of it somewhere. It wasn't just delivered to your doorstep. It, it didn't just come into your house. And yet now with the advent of modern technology, it is ubiquitous. It is everywhere. You do not have to go in search of wicked things to find wicked things. Wicked things fall upon you in our world today. And yet we're called to live in that world. So how does that work? It works as we seek to be intentional in laying aside those things. As we see them and identify them, we mark them as being obstacles and hindrances to our growth, and we cut them off, cut them out, and walk widely around them. That is how the believer is to engage in the technologically diverse world around us. See, we're to intentionally be people who run away from sin. When you engage with the internet, have a plan and know where you're going. I think we talked about this a little bit last time, but just from a pastoral perspective, I cannot tell you how many people that I end up interacting with who are saying, you know, I got into trouble online and it started because I didn't know where I was going. I was just kind of hanging out, going wherever. That is one of the craziest things that you can do as a believer seeking to walk worthy because there is so much junk that is trying to suck you in that two clicks and all of a sudden you're in the middle of a disaster. Why would you do that? Just as a practical tip for those of you who are thinking through, well, what does that look like? Uh, for myself, the way that I try to think through this is, that, is this. Bookmarks are your very best friend, Right? When you open up your internet browser, you ought to know exactly where you're wanting to go. And across the top of my browser, I've got different folders of bookmarks, right? I've got things for work. I've got things for finances. I've got things for news. I've got things for weather. I've got all these different folders of bookmarks. And I just click on those bookmarks and I go directly to the page that I need to go to. And that's it. 
I'm not just surfing around, going all over the place, because there's no point in that. That's dangerous behavior. It's, it's risky living. And why would I want to open myself up to that? Know where you're going, have a plan, go there and get the information that you need, and call it a day. You see, the internet, it's a very, very powerful tool, but only if you use it correctly. If you don't, it can be incredibly dangerous. Seek the information that is necessary and follow the map that you need in order to survive and maintain your purity. Verse 22, lay aside your former life and all those lusts that were being corrupted in the lusts of deceit. And in verse 23, he goes on and he gives us another principle here of what it looks like to pursue Christ in the way we engage with the world around us. He says, Christian, Christian technology is distinctly sanctified. Verse 23, he says, that you may be renewed in the spirit of your mind. This is a very important principle. Paul says in the book of 1 Thessalonians, verse four, chapter 4, verse 3, he says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. You see, God wants us to be people who are growing in our knowledge of him and are be re- being renewed in the spirit of our mind. The way by which that we engage with the world around us, it ought to be distinctly sanctified. That word there in verse 23, renewed. This is what you put on in the place of what you've stripped off, right? This renewing process is kind of comparable to laundry soap, right? This is the soap that you put in. If you just put dirty clothes into a washing machine, they don't come out clean. You've got to add something else in to actually scrub them down and make them white again. Now, I'm not allowed to do laundry because I invariably confuse the bleach with the detergent, and that is not good for clothes. But in this situation, you've got to have the bleach. You've got to have the detergent if you want these things to come out clean. If you want your mind to be clean, if you want your mind to be pure, then you must be actively engaging in the process of renewing your mind. And that means scrubbing it down with the soap of the scripture. It means taking your mind to the cleaners and actually digging into the word of God and finding out not how does Fox News think, not how does CNN think, not how does the depraved world around me think, but instead, what does God think? What does God think about this situation that I'm dwelling upon, right? You need to be studying the scriptures so that you can apply them first and foremost to your life so that your life can be being renewed. Let me ask you this question. When was the last time that you spent time reading your Bible in place of an hour on social media or surfing the internet? You see, it's it's cleanliness of a life marked by love for the truth that allows you to walk without shame. And my life, Paul is telling us here, every facet of my life ought to be marked by a renewal of my mind. And that includes the way you engage with the technological world around you. And it's only as that renewal is happening that I can say that I am without shame. Paul goes on in verse 24, and he says, it's not only pure and sanctified, but the redeemed life is also distinctly Christ-like as well. All these things are very intentional, right? It intentionally seeks to be redeemed. It intentionally seeks to be pure. It intentionally seeks to be sanctified. And here in verse 24, the redeemed life, it it intentionally seeks to be like Christ. It says, put on the new self, 
Well, who is that new self? It's a self that is created in the likeness of God, born in righteousness and holiness of truth. You see, we mentioned this last time as well. When you think about the way by which you're engaging in the world around you, it's not enough to just intentionally reject worldliness. You must also intentionally pursue Christ-likeness. Because every facet, every feature of your life should look directly life-like Christ's. You have a new life. And everything about it, everything in it, is supposed to be consistent with his character. Spiritual life here in this verse, you can kind of put an equal sign there to the likeness of God. Your spiritual life is supposed to look like the image of God that we see in the person of Christ in all of his righteousness and holiness and truth. That is who we are now to be. So at the end of the day, a Christian's usage of technology, it it slams the door on anything that doesn't look like Christ. And it carefully and intentionally cultivates an ecosystem in which God is being consistently honored. It conducts itself in the fear appropriately of God, an awareness of his holiness, an acknowledgement of the great gift of his righteousness that he has granted to us. You see, a Christian on the internet, they don't do whatever they want. They don't go wherever they want. They don't engage in any way they choose. A Christian on the internet is constrained. They are under control by the new life of God within them. That person walks with an awareness that on your forehead is stamped child of God. And they fear doing anything that would bring reproach or shame upon that name. Either in their digital world or in their real world. So my encouragement to us, just as we kind of close the door on what we were talking about last time, because we didn't have the time to get into all of that, is that we would be people who are intentionally pursuing the life and the mind of Christ. And that everything about our intentionality in pursuing him would be reflected in every arena of our life. But since this is one that we haven't really, as a society, spent a lot of time thinking about, my challenge to us is to think about, how am I intentionally pursuing Christ in the way that I am using these powerful tools that have been placed into my hands. That's my challenge to us this morning, that we would look like Christ and be intentional. Now, that intentionality, as Paul goes on, and here's where we turn the corner, Paul says in verse 25, therefore, and he kind of heads into a new section of the text that talks about how our speech is to be governed as well. He says, therefore, in light of who you now are in Christ, in light of the intentional putting on of him and the intentional rejection of worldliness, here is how you are to interact with one another. And as we work our way through this text, we will not get through all of it here today. We'll have to pick it up again next time. But uh, there's really going to be eight different principles that we're going to find between verses 25 and 32 for how the Christian should evaluate his or her communication. All right. Now, these are principles that are universally applicable to every word that comes out of your mouth. 
whether it's in a direct conversation between me and you, or whether it's via a keyboard as you're posting it to the World Wide Web, all right? So, so you may be sitting here this morning saying, I don't have social media accounts, therefore this is not for me. Not true. These principles are applicable everywhere across every platform and every medium, whether that's in person or online. But I think that they are particularly true and particularly useful when it comes to our online communication. I remember the very first time that I signed up for a Facebook account, I don't remember how long ago it was, it was a really long time ago, uh, but there were certain unspoken rules that I knew nothing about because this was a brand new medium. And I thought, well, it's just like interacting in person, except that it's online, except for the fact that it's not at all like interacting in person. And so as I was engaging with these people on Facebook, you know, and I would see them in real life, I had no idea that there's an unspoken rule on social media that you're not supposed to talk about in person what someone else has posted on Facebook. And so I'm running around saying, hey, I saw you posted on Facebook a couple days ago that, you know, this happened and you did so-and-so and a great thought. And they're saying, you can't talk to me about that. I'm like, whoa, there's like whole new like rules for this mode of communication that I knew nothing about. Now that may not be the rule anymore. I got a lot of college kids here this morning. Is that still a rule? Like, can you talk about things? Is that like okay now? Okay, well, 10 years ago, that was not okay, right? And people were like sitting me down and nuthetically confronting me because I'm talking about things, you know, in person that happen online. I'm thinking this is a weird new world that we're living in. And it is, okay? There's all sorts of different kinds of rules that govern behavior for how you're supposed to communicate online. I'm here to tell you this morning that I don't really care so much about those rules as I care about God's rules for how we are to be interacting with one another. Because the reality is whether you're communicating online or you're communicating in person, in God's eyes, there is no difference. It is still communication and it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth or the keyboard speaks. I just inserted that keyboard there into that verse. That's not there in the Greek, just for the record. (laughs) But that's where we need to think about this from. And I think that so often we look at our digital communication and we kind of divorce it out from our regular, normal communication. And we say, well, that's online, and this is in private, this is in person, and and that's digital. And so therefore, they're in two different categories with different rules that govern the behavior over both. And my answer for us this morning is that that is absolutely not true, right? Just because you say something online does not make it any better than if you said it in person. Okay? If you were not willing to say something to someone face to face, why would you say that for the whole world to see? Right? If you were not comfortable taking the pin out of a hand grenade and throwing it into a room and saying, ha ha, watch what this does. Why would you do that on Facebook? Right? The same principles for how we as believers are supposed to be communicating with one another are the same no matter if we're in person or if we're online. And I, and I want us to spend some time thinking about that because here in Ephesians chapter four, there are eight guiding principles that very clearly teach us how God would have us as his people to interact with one another. And I think all of them can be applied to digital communications as well, okay? We can take these things, look at them, break them down and apply them to both halves of our communicative selves, both in person and online. And so that's what I want to do. My encouragement to you would be that before you post 
anything on the internet, you would pour it through the grid of these eight principles. Now, I do not have the time here today to preach an eight-point sermon in the next 17 minutes, okay? So we're going to start going through this list, and it will definitely take us well into our next time together, all right? But the very first thing that I want us to see here is found in verse 25. The first principle that we have to remember is this. Ask yourself before you post, is this true or is this false? Very simple. Is this true or is this false? Look what he says there in verse 25. He says, therefore, in light of who you are, in light of your likeness of God that's been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth, therefore, in light of that, it's very simple. Lay aside all your falsehood and speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. And I, I just want to break that down for a minute here. Now, I, I want to first talk about setting aside falsehood. It's the same word there, lay aside. It means to put something down, to strip something off, to put it away from you. It's a technical word that can mean to stow something away on a boat. It's a word that means to put something in a box and then toss it over the side. It, it can mean actually to keep something or someone imprisoned, but it certainly has the idea of getting rid of something out of your life. And Paul here is saying, get rid of all falsehood from your speech, right? Put your, put your weapons down. Words should not be weapons that can be used, they can be used to kill or to build up. James chapter 3 verses 8 through 10 says, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. With it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. James says, my brothers, these things ought not to be this way. You see, what the apostle here is saying is that if you have been redeemed and you know Christ, it is not possible for there to be falsehood and truth simultaneously coming out of your mouth. That is not behavior consistent with the life of a believer. And therefore, everything about our communication practices ought to be true. And we should be asking ourselves the question, is this true or is this false? Now, what, it, what does it mean for communication to be false? Obviously, when you tell a lie, that's false. But what I want us to think about together is that there's actually a whole bunch of different kinds of falsehoods, a whole bunch of different categories of falsehood that go way beyond the obvious one of saying something that is just flat out not true. A falsehood is anything that is not entirely true, both in content and in purpose. You see, true Christian communication, it goes beyond what is being said, and it gets down to the heart of why it's being said. It's possible to say something that is true from a heart that is false. You see, I can speak the truth in a way that is designed to cut you down. And that is being false. You're saying truth, but you're being false. And God says it's impure. That's not reflective of what godliness is. So, so what are these different categories? I would contend that you could kind of stuff all these things up into that word here in the text, falsehood. That would include things like hyperbole. Don't overstate the truth in an attempt to shade it in the way you want it to be, right? That is an adding an element of falsehood and blowing the truth out of proportion to the point where it's no longer just simply the truth. Embellishment. You say, well, what I said was mostly true, but I added a few juicy details. That kind of stretched the realm of believability. Partial truth isn't truth. Gossip would be another category. Just because you did not come up with the falsehood 
doesn't mean that you're allowed to repeat the falsehood. Sarcasm. Just because you're saying something that may be true in a way that is intended to cut others down doesn't make it true because your heart is false. You could throw in unsubstantiated claims. Don't be reposting things that you cannot verify as being sourced by reality. Why? Because technically it may be true, but it destroys your credibility because people don't know if they can believe what you're saying is true or not. In short, whenever you say anything or post anything online, the quality ought to be sterling. Where anytime someone looks at what you are stating, it ought to be sourced in reality. It should be unassailable. There should be no doubt in anyone's mind that this is truth. When they read what you say, it ought to be clearly and evidentially true. Why? Because it's the truth, you see, that actually defines our new spiritual life. And I think that's why Paul puts this principle of asking yourself, true or false, right at the very top of the list. He says, if it's not true, go no further, hit delete or backspace, because it needs to be true. Why? Look at what he says here in verse 25. He says, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. That's our motivation. You see, in verse 24, we're told that our identity is now found in the truth. Your newfound righteousness, your holiness, it grows out of the truth of who God is. And so Paul's admonition, point number one, he's saying, act like it. That's why we're people committed to the truth, because we've been saved in the truth. The second reason that we're to be committed to only speaking the truth is that our entire community is also grounded in that truth. He says, we are members of one another. And to say things that are false to other members of the body of Christ is like trying to trick one part of your body with another one. You simply cannot do it. You cannot lie to yourself. The thumb cannot say to the brain, well, I'm an elbow now. The brain knows better, right? That thumb is not an elbow. It will never be an elbow. I mean, just try to bend your thumb in the same direction of your elbow. It doesn't work, right? That, that, that you can't bend the thumb you know, enough. You get the point, right? The thumb and the elbow are different. You can't get your thumb to act like an elbow. And that's the whole point of what he's saying here in the text that we, being people who are defined by the truth, cannot live in falsehoods because we're all members of one another. And therefore, we must act like that. And we must prioritize the truth enough to say the truth to those who are around us. And that's the reason why everything you send, you post, you tweet, you Snapchat, Insta, type, whatever you're doing, it must reflect the truth. Because falsehood, you see, it is poison to the redeemed system. Truth, therefore, is number one on his list. You must ask yourself, is the content, is the spirit, and is the essence of what I'm saying here true entirely, down to the very details of it? We are people of truth, so let's be truthful. Okay, I think we've got time for maybe one more here. Second thing we have to ask ourselves is this. Is this engaging or is this inflaming? All right, is it true or false? It is an, it, or, or am I engaging or am I inflaming? Verse 26, he says, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. You know, the worldwide web, 
which I know no one calls it that anymore, but the internet, it has enabled this really strange phenomenon. It's called trolling. You guys know what a troll is on the internet? I mean, it's not somebody that lives under a bridge, but it's the metaphorical spirit of being nasty for the purpose of being nasty, right? There's no good reason for this purpose to be nasty. Nastiness because, hey, why not? Right? These are people who essentially may as well be digital terrorists. They run around and they blow everything they can find up. They have opinions where they should have no opinions because, well, hey, who's here to stop me from having an opinion? And the nastier the opinion, the better it is. And the louder I can say it, the more clicks and views I can get, the more viral it goes, the bigger the troll I am. This is a weird world we live in, but it's the world we live in. Right? These are people who are bent upon burning things down. And they say, well, my anger justifies my bad behavior because I'm trying to fix things. It's, it's the mob mentality where everyone is mad about something and at something. And you end up with bands of traveling marauders who are seeking out justice, taking up causes and prosecuting offenses that weren't even aimed at them to begin with. They're moving from one problem to another problem, making comments, upending lives, spewing opinions, all from the comfort of an armchair with the cloak of invisibility. And you ask yourself the question, why is our society so angry and divided? It's because people run around the internet with no accountability whatsoever for what they're saying and not actually speaking the truth in love. But Paul has something to say here. He says, be angry and yet do not sin. What does that mean? It means this. He's calling us to engage helpfully in legitimate issues, but he is prohibiting us from inflaming situations to suit our own ends. It's really a very useful tool and command for online communication. You see, anger, it's the innate response to a wrong, either real or perceived. Our, our innate sense of justice that was hardwired into us of right and of wrong was programmed by God at creation to serve as an alarm system in our lives, where he gave you on purpose the capacity to respond strongly to injustice. It's part of being created in his image because his infinite holiness requires a strong response when it is offended as well. You see, biblical anger, it's not rage, it's not resentment, but instead it's a, it's a deeply held conviction about what is right and what is not. And in a fallen world, you see, our capacity to be angry almost always turns inward upon itself and it begins to serve ourselves rather than the purposes and causes that God would have it to serve. And this is really important for us to figure out because ours is a world in which the power of the tongue, it's a thousand times stronger than it ever was when James says the tongue is a fire in James chapter 3. Because you see, when James spoke, the tongue was capable of reaching pretty much only the people in that room. But today, when we speak, it can be blasted around the world to thousands of people with the swipe of my thumb, most of whom I have never met. So it's important for us to sort this out. How do we be angry and yet not sin, especially online? Well, I think as we look here at Ephesians chapter 4, it's important to know that Really, there are three different words for anger that are used here in Ephesians chapter 4, and they all mean something different. The first word we'll use is down in verse 31, where he says, let all bitterness and wrath. That word there, wrath, it's a word that means to be angry. It's a turbulent kind of agitation. It, it means for something to be boil, boiling or wrathful in its passion. And we're told in verse 31, there's no place 
in the Christian's life for that kind of boiling, wrathful rage. That's just simply not consistent with the life of a redeemed person. The second word is used there in verse 26, where he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. That word is a different word. It means to be irritated, essentially, or or annoyed, where he's saying, don't stay annoyed or irritated by these things. And then the third word that he uses there when he says, be angry, in verse 26, that word angry in that context is a totally different word, and it, it means to have an abiding or settled habit of the mind that is aroused under certain conditions. What he's saying there is, when the truth of God is violated, and there is injustice done, then there ought to be a settled conviction in your soul that, hey, this is wrong. And it's that settled conviction that then motivates you to go and take action to try to correct that wrong. There's three different kinds of anger that are being talked about here. The hinge between a biblical anger and a sinful anger is very simple. You must ask yourself this question. Why do you have it? Is this in the service of upholding justice or morality or godliness because God's holiness has been breached? Or is this emotion that I'm having serving myself because my own autonomy, sensibility, and pride have been offended? One of these causes us to engage in a helpful way. The other one causes us to treat everything around us like we have a blowtorch in our hand. And that is not helpful. See, anger can be used for two purposes can be used to engage where my alerted sense of right and wrong begins to push for that which is right, to engage in a way that is helpful, to bring about a solution that humbly honors the Lord, or my anger, if it's selfish, can be used to inflame a situation where I use my rage to seek to burn down everything that confronts me and annoys me. I will not let this stand because it confronts my sensibilities. There's a big difference between someone who takes that sense of offended justice and seeks to engage with it and someone who seeks to just take that wrong that is against me and inflame everything else around me. One of these is selfish and destructive. The other one is selfless and constructive. One honors the Lord, the other uplifts yourself. So, before we engage or inflame, how do we know the difference between the two? Before I I post something, before I say something, before I get involved in a situation that has really offended me, how do I know if I'm selflessly seeking to serve that which is right or selfishly seeking to burn everyone else down because they've made me upset? What does this anger look like? Well, I think the answer to that is given to us right here in this text, right? The very first thing he says, do not sin, Do not let the sun go down on your anger. That's the first principle, you see, because righteous anger, it is always under control. It is not a rage that burns like an out-of-control fire. It's capable of being turned off when the sun goes down. That's the principle. When the day is done, do you have the ability to hang up your spurs and set this issue down? If you don't, that's not righteousness, that's rage. If there's a shred of wrath in your heart, the answer here is don't send. Because righteousness is always under control. And it always thinks through every possible aspect of everything that it says. That's the first principle for how to tell the difference between these kinds of anger. Is it under control or not? 
The second question you can ask yourself to know the difference is this. What is motivating this anger? You see, a righteous anger is pointed towards God's purposes and not your own ends. And that's what he means there in verse 27, where he says, do not give the devil an opportunity. What he's saying there is examine your heart and understand why you're engaging in this subject. When you're angry at a situation, is it because of a violation of God's holiness? Or is it because your sensibilities have been offended? Again, one of these things honors the Lord. The other opens the door to the devil. So if you know that you're feeling this way because you were offended, instead of trying to defend an offense against God, then you're wrong. You will inflame it and you won't engage correctly. You will be wrathful, you will be filled with rage, and you will be out of control because your end is to justify yourself, not to defend that which is right. See, a righteous anger, it seeks to engage helpfully to bring about resolution, but it's not concerned with winning. It's not concerned with prioritizing itself or the end of the equation. A righteous anger is concerned with God's glory being put on display, not myself being justified and proven right. So ask yourself those questions. Is this under control? And is this aimed at God's glory or my own? And those are two very important ways to tell what kind of anger you're dealing with there. Okay, so the, the first two principles that we found here in this text are really very simple, very clear. Is it true? And is it engaging in a way that is helpful? Because it's so often so easy to say things that are false and to just simply seek to inflame a situation to suit my own purposes. God says the redeemed life, it doesn't interact that way. So let's take that truth and apply it to the way we communicate with one another and the world around us today. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the principles that it has for our life that are so very practical and applicable. We do pray that our communications would be governed by these principles, that our lives would reflect lives that strive and desire to look and be like the person of Jesus Christ. We're thankful for the work that he has done in redeeming us and bringing us righteousness and holiness and a knowledge of the truth that we have heard from him. And we understand that that is how we are to now live. And so may we put that to practice in very significant and practical ways as we seek to reflect your glory to the watching world that is around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.